0: How's everybody doing? Good, good. Um, If you've never been here before, we are in the Gospel of John. That's the fourth book of the New Testament. We're in chapter five. We're doing the second half of chapter five today. If you haven't been here with us, we've been doing really basic stuff, fundamental stuff, ground level, foundational, fundamental stuff, okay? And uh, sometimes we kind of take that for granted. If we've been a Christian for any length of time, I haven't been a Christian for, I guess, an extremely long time. I got saved and 02. Uh, I was 23 almost. I'm, I'm 37 now, so 14 years of my life. And even, you know, kind of still being, in my estimation, kind of a baby Christian in, in some ways, we forget and we take for granted uh, the fundamentals that are extremely important to stand on. And if you're new, it's extremely important that you know what the fundamentals are. We can't build anything on top of that, and and our foundation is, is uh, not strong. And so, We've been talking about extremely basic things. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the importance of basic things before I get into what we talked about last week and what we're going to talk about this week. Um, Many of you know I'm from St. Louis originally, and I went up to St. Louis on Tuesday. My mother just had open-heart surgery, and um, she's fine. She's doing well, and a lot of you prayed for that, and I really appreciate that. And uh, Drove up to St. Louis, and uh, I saw her on Tuesday. She was unconscious, so I saw her. She didn't see me, and uh, she was out of it, and... and, um, was there right when she got out of the surgery. And some of my family was there. I have some aunts and uncles and cousins that live up in uh, St. Louis, some of them in downtown, some kind of in the suburbs. and uh, So I got to eat dinner with them. And one of them that that I got to eat dinner with was uh, my Uncle Kenny, and he watches. He's probably watching right now, so I hope I don't embarrass him. But uh, I wanted to brag on him for a second and brag about fundamentals and why they're so important. For years, my Uncle Kenny struggled with really, really bad alcoholism. And he's always been a hard worker. He worked in the prison system in Texas, which is a, a pretty big deal, and then um, worked in the prison system in Missouri. And uh, uh, a, a decent man just really, really struggled with alcoholism and didn't have a relationship with the Lord. And at the beginning of the year, I can't remember exactly what month it was, but um, he was having liver failure and he was extremely bad shape and was basically on, on uh, his deathbed. And he's only, I mean, he's young. He's, he's not very old. He's the youngest of all my mom's siblings. And just in really, really bad shape, and so my mother started talking to him, and, and my mom is like the quintessential mom. She thinks I'm like the only Christian speaker in the world, and so she's like, you got to listen to Corey, you know, and, uh, and so Kenny started watching the services online with his wife, and, and they actually have some people from their uh, apartment complex that comes over, and they watch the sermon. That's kind of their church, and so they started watching the sermons. They started reading the Bible. They started praying. They started developing this kind of just very fundamental, basic relationship with Jesus over time when he got really, really sick. Uh, long story short, when I went up there to see my mother, one of the first people that popped out of the hospital was my Uncle Kenny, and dude just looked phenomenal, right? Had lost all this weight, smile, and He's just like, what's up, man? And like gave me a huge hug, and I got to see him, and I just, just kind of stepped back, and I was like, Kenny, you look phenomenal. And he's like, well, I haven't had a drop of alcohol in about nine months, and I was like, all right. First time in like 30 years, right, that this guy hasn't drank at all. And um, and I was just looking at him, I was like, that's amazing. How are you doing? He's like, great. And like, we're in the car ride, we had to go to AutoZone to get something for my car. And he's like quoting scripture and talking about things I've said. And I'm just sitting there, I'm like, what the heck? And it wasn't like this, he didn't go to like a huge revival or have anyone, you know, like this, these things that we think we have to do to, to see our lives change. He just started doing the fundamentals, um, attending. He started praying and he started reading the word of God and applying it to his life and that was it. And he and his wife are like completely different people. And um, he's just doing phenomenal. So it's important. The fundamentals are extremely important. We cannot move on to the deeper things unless we have the fundamentals in place and we know what they are. So last week, the fundamental that we talked about was this. We (coughs) talked, excuse me, we talked about from chapter five, who is Jesus? What is Jesus's identity? And even as Christians, sometimes we're confused on who and what Jesus does, who he is and what he does and why he came. But it's important to know who Jesus is. We talked about that last week. This week we're going to talk about something kind of interesting. Christianity is the only world religion believes that it's not our works that take us to the next stage. Every other world religion believes that it is their works that take them to nirvana or enlightenment or whatever the case may be. And we're the only faith on planet Earth that believes it's not what we do, it's what God has already done. And so the question, the fundamental that we're going to talk about today is this. If we cannot rely on our works to save our soul, what do we do? So this is a very fundamental thing, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Okay, so again, I'm in the fifth chapter of John. I'm starting in verse 24. That's fourth book of the New Testament, maybe, I don't know, 60 70% through your Bible if you have one. Uh, also on the UVersion app, if you have that on your phone, that's the Bible app. You can look that up, and it's free, and all the Scripture and everything is on there. And then uh, you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. So you got everything in front of you. I'm going to do half of chapter five. Guys, I'm not going to blow you away today. It's going to be simple, 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 basic stuff. Simple stuff. At the end of this, you're going to be like, well, duh. I mean, like, you already know this, most of you. Very, very simple stuff. But we'll see where the Lord takes us. We'll see what he says to us, okay? So I'm going to read. I'm going to get into this, and um, we'll see what happens, Okay. <sighs> God, I just want to tell you, I love you, Lord. Um, God, thank you for what you've done in my family. Thank you for what you've done for for my Uncle Kenny and for my mother that made it through that surgery, God, and what you've done with with my mom's side of the family up in St. Louis. God, you're so good. God, thank you for my family that's in this room right now, God. Not my flesh and blood family, my spiritual family that's here right now. Love these people, God, and you've brought them here for a reason. You've brought them here for, for such a time as this, God, for us to hear something and to absorb something from your word. Lord, open up our ears, open up our eyes, Lord, let us understand what you're saying to us today. God, we pray for every church in our city, pray for every nonprofit in our city, pray that your kingdom is advanced through them, God, and that it's never about us, it's always about you, it's always about you. We love you and we thank you, God. Keep your hand on us today, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, guys, chapter five, I'm going to read a little bit and I will do my best to, uh, to break it down, okay? Here we go. I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, has, but has passed from death to life. I assure you, whenever Jesus says that, we should probably pay attention. I assure you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he is granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Don't be amazed at this because a time is coming when all those who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good things to the resurrection of life, but to those who've done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. Now if you haven't been here, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. If you don't know who the Pharisees are, they're the religious ones. They're also kind of the bad guys of the gospel. Not all of them, but most of them, right? So when the Pharisees come in, there's kind of the dun 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 and them and Jesus kind of, you know, like kind of go at it a little bit. They're not they're not really friends, okay? And so the theme that Jesus is trying to push to them is that he and the Father are one. They're in unity together. The Greeks would say they call it homoousios, which means they're of the same substance. And so not only is Jesus trying to persuade them that he and God are the same thing, he's also trying to persuade them at the power of the word, that it is Christ's word that saves us and builds faith in us. Now, this is kind of a recap from a couple of lessons ago but we talked about what faith is. And according to John and according to Hebrews 11, true faith is not seeing miraculous demonstrations and miraculous things and fireworks and all these crazy things. True biblical faith is hearing the word of God and responding to it. That's not to say that all miraculous things are bad, but the miraculous things simply point people to Jesus and the word of God, and that's where true faith is built up. Okay, through the word, not necessarily through a uh, miraculous demonstration. So Jesus said this, whoever hears the word, whoever hears what Christ has to say, whatever the Bible has to say, those people will live. Jesus said there's an hour coming and it is now here. He's basically saying it's arrived. The time is now when people who are spiritually dead will hear the words of Jesus and they will come alive. I love what John chapter eight says. This is very important if you're into English at all. um, There's an if then clause, which means if you do this, then this will happen. And Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the word is extremely important. And that word if is extremely important, that if we continue in the word of God, More truth will be revealed to us, and the more truth that is revealed to us, the more liberating that is. Now, I know it's Jesus that liberates us. I know that. I know it's not this book that I'm holding, this leather-bound book, but this is the instrument by which the liberator uses to give us freedom. Jesus is the one that liberates us, but the vessel that he uses is the Word of God. Therefore, guys, this book is extremely important, extremely important. And so when Jesus came down to earth, of course, he came to to pay for our sins and to bridge this gap between God and humanity. He also came to be the model, the example of how we receive eternal life. It says that the father has given power to the son to give life. So Jesus has the ability to give physical life, uh, spiritual life, present life, like our life right now, and then our eternity and when Jesus says that God granted him the right to pass judgment because he's the son of man, that means that Jesus is the only one who's ever been 100% God and also 100% mankind. That makes him the only right fit to be the judge of mankind. He has the righteousness of God, but he also has had the human experience. And so Jesus submits himself to the Father's will. And in Jesus' submission, We are modeled how every single one of us gains eternal life, and it is by this. We must be submitted to the Father. We must be submitted to God's will. Submission has become such a bad word in our culture, but we are to relent. We are to lay ourselves down for God and do what he wants us to do. Okay, so here's what Jesus does in this part that I just read. He makes a couple of different uh, transitions The first one is this, Jesus first refers to himself as the son of God, which shows that he is, like I said, 100% God, the son of God. As he continues to talk, he starts talking about how he is the son of man, which the transition from I am 100% God, I am also 100% human. Then Jesus switches to where he talks about the present life, how if we believe in Jesus, our present life gets better right now. And then he also says, you will receive eternal life. So he moves from deity to humanity, present to future. And he says, in the future, there will be two resurrections. There will be the resurrection of the righteous, where we will come back and for a thousand years on this earth, serve with God and lead with, with Jesus Christ as he sets up his kingdom. And if you get into Revelation, towards the end of it, he will wipe away the heavens, he will wipe away the earth, all people will be resurrected, and he will judge everyone to go to their eternity. And Jesus' the reason he brings this up is he wants to make sure that we are on that first wave, that first wave of resurrection where we come back and we reign with him on earth for a thousand years. Now, I don't have time to go into that. That's a whole nother lesson. But Jesus came to represent the Father. That's extremely important. We said last week that Jesus is, when we talked about his identity, he is the visible representation of the invisible God. So what Jesus came to do is he came to bring clarity. Oftentimes in the gospel, Jesus says, you've heard this, but this is what I meant. You thought this, but this is what I meant. He came to bring clarity to where we had a false perception of the word or the false perception of God. Jesus also came to be our atonement which means all of this sin and guilt and shame and all this stuff had built up for so long, we had accumulated this debt to God. Jesus came and paid off the debt. Now, if Jesus comes to give us clarity on how to live and how to respond to God, and if he comes down and pays our debt, right, we're debt free when it comes to sin, we have no excuse for anyone to perish. That doesn't mean that some aren't going to go to hell, but it was God's will that none go to hell. And so when he came, he gave us every opportunity, to make sure that we make the right choice. And Jesus came to represent and carry out God's will, which is that none should perish. So Jesus is selfless and he gave his life so right now, presently, we can have a certain quality of life. Now let me stop there for a second. We think of this in very earthly terms. We think a quality of life is a lot of money or you know this like trophy wife and this excellent job and all these different things we want. Here's the difference between the world's version of quality of life and God's version of quality of life. The world says your circumstances determine your contentment. Jesus says regardless of your circumstances if you have me you will be content. You guys with me? So no matter what happens around us, if we have Christ, there is a peace that passes all understanding. There's a contentment regardless of what others do to us. The exact opposite of what the world tells us, okay? Got a little bit of a response there. That was good. (laughs) If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another, capital A, that means God, there is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is valid. You have sent messengers to John, and he has testified to the truth. I don't receive man's testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and for a time you were willing to enjoy his light. But I have a greater testimony than John the Baptist, because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish." These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. But you have not heard his voice at any time and you have not seen his form. You don't have his word living in you because you don't believe in the one he sent. You pore over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. Yet they testify about me. And you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Now, here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus knew people's thoughts. He knew what their hearts were. He could see their motives. He could see their intentions, and he could read their minds, okay? So all of these Pharisees were standing in front of him, and they had a question on their mind that they hadn't said verbally, but Jesus knew what it was. And essentially, the question was this. What is the evidence? What is the proof? Who are the witnesses that confirm what you're telling us? You say you're the son of God, what's your proof? So Jesus had already told them that he was the son of God. He had defended himself, if you want to think of it like a courtroom, and now he's going to start bringing witnesses to the stand, if you will. He's going to present his resume. Now the first one on his resume is God. That's a big one. So Jesus said no other witness besides God really matters. He says, the only person that I need to impress is God. And the testimony that God gives me, that's the only thing that's valid. And so what we need to take from that is this, guys. And listen, I am not the best of this. I'll just be completely honest with you. My love language is words of affirmation. That means if you compliment me, that means a lot to me. If you criticize me, it hurts me bad. I'm not saying you shouldn't criticize me, but that's just my love language. I don't, I'm not inviting that necessarily, but... <laughs> I just want you to know like your words mean a lot to me, both positive and negative. And I need to work on that to an extent because I care what you think of me. I care what people think of me and and I need that kind of affirmation. And so all of us to some extent have that struggle. We are concerned with how people perceive us. That's why Facebook is so big guys. Because we don't have to be super awesome in our daily life but if we put the facade up that we are, right? Everyone's a whoa. You got 5,000 friends, and all he does is vacation all the time. Amazing. I would love that life, right? And so we put this facade up. But what Jesus says to these Pharisees, he goes, Look, guys, the only opinion that really matters to me is God's. And that needs to be applied to you and I. And that is difficult, that is hard. But listen, at the end of the day, guys, the only one that's going to judge your eternal salvation is God, the only one that holds your destiny in his hand is God. The only one you need to make sure you have a, I'm not saying you don't have a strong relationship with the others, but the the only one you need to make sure you impress is God. That's the one that we need to seek his validation. Okay, so God's the first witness, and they're kind of like, okay, anyone can say God's on their back. You know, God's got their back. What's the second one? He says, well, John the Baptist, if you want a human witness, let me give you a human witness. Jesus says, now human witnesses, human testimonies mean nothing to me. Basically, Jesus was saying, I don't need any humans to say I'm anything, but because I want you to be saved, I'll give you a human perspective. Now, that's interesting about Jesus. Listen, this is very important. We see in this that Jesus said he wanted the Pharisees to be saved, that they were hateful, religious, extreme kind of right-wingers, if you will, right? These are the people who just like are obnoxious and self-righteous and pompous and everything else way out there. And Jesus said, I'm going out of my way to make sure that you have the opportunity to be saved as well. That's something for us to kind of take note of. So he said, if you want a human witness, how about John the Baptist? He says, you guys like John the Baptist. He was a shining lamp. He was a bright light for a while. And then you guys kind of got tired of him. Now, the reason he said that is this. The Pharisees respected John the Baptist and the fact that John was out there saying the Savior is coming and everyone wants the Savior to come. Even the Pharisees who didn't like John's method, they're like, we dig John because John's ushering in the Savior. But then when the Savior showed up, the Savior didn't come in the package that they liked. It's much the same with us, guys. We want Jesus to come save us, but when he starts telling us how to live, we don't want that. Hey, save my soul, but don't tell me what I need to watch on television. Save my soul, but don't tell me how to do my marriage. Don't tell me how to raise my kids. Don't tell me that there's righteousness and unrighteousness. Don't tell me that there's right and wrong. I just want to be saved. I don't want a Lord. But Jesus came as Savior, and he came as Lord. And so a lot of people rejected him and still do because of that. The third witness, Jesus said, is he goes, guys, just look what I've been doing. Turned water to wine for Pete's sake, right? Told a guy to pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath. You guys didn't like that, but that's miraculous. And so he said, the next piece of evidence is my works. The works that Jesus performed were not only spectacular, this is vitally important, they were in alignment with the nature and character of God. Jesus never did anything that was a waste of time. He never performed any miraculous things that didn't have a purpose. Even some of his crazier miracles, right? When he's walking with his disciples and he sees a fig tree, I don't know if you've ever seen a fig tree, we actually have one at the edge of our yard, we have a fig tree. And so fig trees, they have these big leaves that come up and the fig is underneath the leaf. So when you see these huge leaves dropping down, you should be able to pick up the leaf and there's a beautiful fig that you can pull off the tree and eat, right? So Jesus is walking one time, sees a fig tree, walks up to it, and it should be producing fruit. He lifts up the leaf, no fruit. So what does Jesus do? Does this, withers away and dies. It's not because he hates figs or fig trees, right? He didn't just do it to show off, look, I can kill plants. He didn't do that. (laughs) He was doing that to teach a lesson to his disciples, That if we have the appearance, listen to me, the appearance of looking like we're doing great things, but when you get to the core of it, there's nothing there, you're no good anymore. So everything he did was teaching a kingdom lesson, and that was to lead people into salvation, to lead people into listening to the word of God. Now, the fourth witness was probably the most damning when it came to the Pharisees. This is the one that really got them, okay? Jesus said, my fourth witness is the Bible. He goes, if you go back and read the Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Malachi, he said, almost all of that points towards me. So maybe the strongest piece of evidence of Jesus being the Savior was the very thing that the Pharisees should have known better than everyone. He even said, you guys, pour over this. Pour there, not P-O-U-R, where you pour. Pour like absorb. You guys absorb the word all the time. You absorb it. You take it in. You should know this. But he says, here's the thing. If you knew the Old Testament, you should know that the whole Old Testament was an arrow pointing to me. That's what Jesus said. And so here's the thing. It's good to have an open heart and it's good to have an open mind. But if we don't have an open Bible, we're gonna get in serious trouble. An open heart produces an open mind, but we must begin with an open Bible because it is the Bible, it is the word that points us towards Jesus. It is the Bible in its entirety, all of it points us towards salvation, points us towards a relationship with God. And we need that. So people said, Corey, are you open-minded? Yeah. Or you have an open heart? Yeah. But first I have an open Bible. This is what sets my parameters. This is what guides me in the right direction, the scripture. Okay. And so what the Pharisees missed was this. The Pharisees knew the rules. Guys, let me tell you how well the Pharisees knew the rules. By the time one became a Pharisee, okay, this is kind of the order of how Jewish culture went. From five years old to 10 years old, Jewish children would study the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. Okay, let me give you a little perspective here. The Torah, that's this, right? So that much of the Bible. They would study this from age five to about 10, and they would know it by heart. They'd know every single word of it by the time they were about 10 or 11 years old if they were a decent student. Now, once they got to be about 11 years old, they would graduate into another program from the time they were about 11 years old to about 16. They learned the entire Tanakh. That is the entire Old Testament. That's that much, if you can see that. And so by the time a kid was about 16 years old, like we can't get them to clean their rooms now, right? But they would memorize this much, 39 books of the Bible they would have memorized. So whenever I'm like, I can't remember things, 39 books of the Bible that most teenagers would know by heart. And at that point, if they were still good students, they would move on to a rabbinical program where when they were about 16 years old, if you were a male, they didn't do it for females, a rabbi would take you and for 14 years, one-on-one teach you and train you in the scripture. So by the time that these men became Pharisees, not only did they know the word, you could ask them any passage in the first 39 books of the Bible, the Old Testament, and they would know it by heart. They would know it right off the bat. So they knew the rules. They knew the law but they miss the application of the word. They miss that all of these words are meant to correct and reproof us and ultimately put us into a relationship and an intimacy not only with God, but with other people as well. And we don't study it out of obligation. We study it because we wanna know God. Because we don't know how he thinks and how to grow closer to him. So listen, here's the thing. Simply knowing the law, simply knowing the Ten Commandments, simply knowing the Bible and the New Testament does not make us holy. It does not make us good. It is applying those things. And not out of obligation, but out of a love and a reverence for God. Listen, if we put the Ten Commandments in every single government building in the United States, that does not make the government righteous. That does not make it holy. You can put the Ten Commandments in your home. That doesn't make you holy. You can memorize them and you can recite them and you can do all these things, but until we apply the word, and until we apply the word out of a love and an adoration for God, not an obligation. Okay? Next part. This part's good. Jesus said, I do not accept glory from men, but I know you that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe? While accepting glory from one another, you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Because Moses wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, Jesus is gonna kinda hit him below the belt a little bit. He's gonna give a strong rebuke. The Pharisees had literally been studying the works of Moses for like 2,000 years by the time Jesus rolled onto the scene. So Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. If you were to talk to any Jew about Moses, he was kind of like their go-to guy. So this chapter closes out with a bold proclamation about the Pharisees. Jesus rebukes his accusers because their group had been studying the Scripture so long that they should have seen that he was the Messiah, but they completely missed it, completely misunderstood it. And so what we see is this. There was a time in chapter 2 of John, if you were here, There was a large group of people, probably about the size of this room, a large group of people that were following Jesus because of the miraculous things he was doing. And what they would do is they say, Jesus, we trust you. And it says in chapter 2 that Jesus would look at them and he'd say, I don't trust you. He saw on the outside what they were trying to act like, but he knew their hearts. And so the Pharisees were the same ways. The, the Pharisees would come up and they looked very religious. They looked like great followers of God. They dressed the right way. They spoke the right way. They devoted their entire life to studying the scriptures, but Jesus knew their heart and he knew that something was amiss. Now, last week I told you Jesus gets sassy, right? And sometimes people are just like, that, that's very wrong, Corey. You can't say that. Well, I'm going to show you some sassiness of Jesus and i even highlighted the extra sassy parts of Jesus in the scripture, okay? Jesus sometimes, man, he can get a little sharp tongue sometimes. Okay, now let me set the scene for this in Matthew. Jesus is a carpenter. Same thing as like a masonry person would be now. Carpenters just didn't work with wood. They were were handymen, okay? Jesus came from a town that was kind of like a podunk town. He was a blue-collar worker, and his mother had the reputation for getting pregnant out of wedlock when she was 14 years old. That's Jesus, okay? Jesus rolls up into Jerusalem. Would have been the equivalent of like New York City, right? got in front of the most religious, educated, powerful people in the entire Jewish community. And this is what he says to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. How are you, he says. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and every impurity. That's pretty hardcore. He doesn't stop there. He says in the same way on the outside, you seem like righteous people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so just like these followers came to him and said, we trust you, he's like, I don't trust you yet. The Pharisees came and they looked the part, but deep down inside, something was rotten. Something was wrong. And so Jesus told him, he said, I come in my father's name. The reason why he said that is before Jesus had come along, there had been a lot of false Christ's. There had been a lot of false messiahs. People for hundreds of years before Jesus popped up and they'd say, I'm the one that the prophets talked about. I'm the one that the Old Testament was talking about. And it was all about them. And so on top of the other evidence that Jesus presented, another big piece of evidence is Jesus' humility. Whenever, whenever praise was sent to Jesus, he would deflect that onto God the Father. In fact, he says, it's not my will, it's God's will. Now here's the thing. If any preacher, if any teacher, if any author, if anything draws a lot of attention to them, you need to watch out. Because false prophets always make it ultimately about them. And they do not have humility. Um, so why, why do so many people go to people like that? We know that false teachers are self-serving. We know that they're in it for them. We know that they're looking out for their best interest and not ours. So why do they amass such a following? The reason why false teachers get so many people around them is they play to human desires. They only say things that affirm what you already want to know, what you already believe. What false teachers do is they offer material gain, right? If you just come to our church, you're going to be rich because Jesus was rich, right? He was homeless most of the time, didn't have anything, had to depend on on women that traveled with him to pay for his food and pay for everything, so that's not really the Christ model, but false prophets say, you're gonna be rich, you're gonna have all these things, you're gonna have all this material possession. Not even false Christian leaders, but you guys remember that book, The Secret, that came out a couple of years ago? If you just think about it hard enough, it'll be there, right? If I just, if I just think about a Ferrari long enough, I'll go out and instead of my 2002 Ford Escape, there'll be a new Ferrari. And so we, you know, th- there's a whole documentary and books that sold millions of copies by these false teachers that present this stuff. That is bull crap. Anyways, <laughs> there's this stuff. They, they present power to us that if you just follow me, you'll receive this new power, this enlightenment, to where you have this new power from within yourself. Ease of living. The big one nowadays is indulgence without guilt. Let me tell you something about guilt. We often pray against guilt Guilt is a mechanism to get us to repent and get in line with Jesus. If you do something in rebellion to God, I want you to be guilty. I want you to feel guilty because that guilt will point you into the direction of repentance. Then God will remove the sin, remove the guilt, remove the shame, and you can be good with the Father. That guilt is a mechanism. That conviction is a mechanism. And if you go to churches that say, hey, you never need to feel guilty, we need to be careful about that. You need to be careful about that. When they don't, you know why most pastors and most churches don't go through the word like we go through the word? Because there are things that will come up if you just read the word that will convict us, that will correct us and reprove us. And we need those things. False teachers offer us popularity and fame and all these different things. Here's what's interesting though. Jesus offered us the cross. Bloody and rough and rough and a lot of sweat and tears. And not only his cross, he says, you get to pick one up too. Jesus didn't come saying, if you follow me, everyone's going to serve you, like a lot of pastors believe. He said, you're going to get the opportunity to serve. You're going to have the opportunity to wash people's feet and take care of people that may even hate your guts and persecute you and kill you, that you get to do that. Anyone in this room who serves, you know a life of servitude is so much more fulfilling than a life of self-consumption. Any of you who serve, you know that. You know it feels better to give than to take. And ultimately, all of us get to take more than we've ever earned. We get the grace of God and the love of God, and we're supposed to pour that back out. Paul said this to Timothy. He was warning his protege. Paul was warning his protege, Timothy, to watch out for this. He said, a time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. It's not sexy just to hear about Jesus's grace and repentance and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism in water. That's not sexy enough. We need to twist it up a little bit. We need to do something different. We need something new. And they will turn away from the hearing of the truth and they will turn aside to myths. I would argue that this time has already arrived. So Jesus looked at the Pharisees, the religious people, right? And he says, you guys got it all backwards. He says, you're looking for the approval of each other and you're not even looking for the approval of God. You're trying to be popular with each other and you're not trying to be popular with God. And he says, you accept the glory from each other, not seeking glory from the only God that exists. And the way they would receive glory, guys, is <laughs> we should do this when we fast at the, at the beginning of the year. They would walk around, they would fast and they'd like slump down and they would like walk real slow and drag their feet. And people were like, oh man, they're fasting. They're really spiritual, right? And they would pray really loud in the streets and they'd rip their clothes and they'd pour ashes on their head and all this stuff. And so the Pharisees would walk around whining and moaning and ashes and ripped clothes and People say, man, they are super spiritual, right? And they would receive all this affirmation from those around us. Guys, we have a tendency to do similar things. We, po- we just put it on Facebook now, right? We don't pour ashes on our head. Corey, that's crazy. They would pour ashes on their head. Oh, we just post it on Facebook now, all the great things we do, right? When Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, we let everyone in the world know how great we are. And we receive affirmation from people And that's not what God wants, though. God says, man, don't worry about the affirmation of people. Just try to get affirmation, get validation from me. Now, does that mean we hold back in worship? No. I'll be ornery here for a second. God was very demonstrative in his love for us. I believe we need to be very demonstrative in our love for him. I believe we don't need to hold back in worship. I think we should lift our hands and sing and praise. And if the spirit moves you, get on your knees or hit your face or whatever you need to do. But when we worship, the thing is this, we need to make sure it is done because we genuinely love God, not because we're trying to impress other people. That's the thing. Should we be demonstrative? Heck yes, we should be demonstrative. But because we love God, not because we're trying to impress anyone in this room. Okay, so here's the big low blow <laughs> that Jesus gives these guys, right? He says, hey, you guys like Moses, right? The Jews, you all like Moses. Moses was arguably the most important writer to the Jews and the most important scripture to the Jews. Moses wrote from Deuteronomy 6.4, Moses wrote that, right? First five books of the Bible, he wrote it. He's kind of like their, their, their pillar, right? He even says, Jesus says, like, that's the one you lean into is Moses. Not only was he a pivotal writer, he was probably the most important man ever, to the Jewish people. And so Jesus says this, you guys like Moses so much, but Moses talked about me. (laughs) He talked about me. Even in Genesis chapter three, Moses, even at the very beginning of the Bible, Moses wrote about Jesus. Talked about how God was going to send a Messiah to stomp on the devil's head and correct this problem with humanity. Jesus is like, that was me. Moses prophesied about Jesus really blatantly in Deuteronomy chapter 18. But the religious leaders had become so self-absorbed They'd become such lovers of rules rather than a lover of relationship with God. They missed that the Messiah that their hero wrote about was standing right in front of them, looking them in the face. So what essentially happened with the the Pharisees, the religious people, is they valued law, they valued rules, they valued the written word on paper more than they valued Jesus, more than they valued God. And the Pharisees had studied about a liberating Savior. They knew that God was going to send a Messiah. They knew that. But they grew so comfortable in their tradition and so comfortable in their dependency on rules that they missed Jesus standing right in front of them. They missed the Messiah right in front of their faces. Here's what they were guilty of doing, guys, when we do the same thing. The Ten Commandments, the Jews thought we need to follow the Ten Commandments, that will save us. And because they couldn't just follow them, they added on like 1,500 rules, literally, to the Ten Commandments. It was rules, rules, rules. Legalism, legalism, legalism. Now, the Ten Commandments are good. If you were here when I taught Romans, we said this every week. The Ten Commandments are good, but the Ten Commandments cannot save us. All the rules do... All the law does, all the Old Testament does, all that the Ten Commandments do, is they're an arrow that point towards and they define what sin is. The Ten Commandments tell us what is righteous and what is unrighteous, but they cannot save us. The only thing that can save us is the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of God that we receive from a relationship with God. Simply knowing what is right and wrong will not save your soul. I would argue that most people know what right and wrong is. It's not an issue of knowing what right and wrong is. It's an issue of applying the word of God. It's an issue of applying the blood of Christ on our life. It's an issue of us receiving God's grace and building a relationship with him. But we remain a people, all of us in this room, remain people who are drawn to works. Like I said, Christianity is the only faith on planet earth that says it's not your works, it's his works that save us. It's the only one. Okay, so I'm gonna be, I'll probably receive hateful stuff for this, or you know, someone will not like me about this, but but we're gonna talk theology, good theology, okay? We often determine the state of one's soul based on the works of their life. That's that's how we judge people. If they're good or bad, right? We judge them. That's called self-righteousness. Not using God's standards, but our standards, that's a good person. That's not a good person based on what we, what we think. So a couple of years ago, a Christian writer, I would argue that he's not a Christian, but he, he's a Christian writer, wrote an article that turned into a book, and the article was about Gandhi. And basically the thesis of the article is, you cannot be a Christian and believe that Gandhi did not go to Jesus' heaven because of all the good humanitarian work that Gandhi had done. Now, now look, the stuff that Gandhi did was amazing. He bridged gaps between Hindus and Muslims and he fasted for 42 days, I think, and tried to bring unity between these people who were fighting, did a lot of great humanitarian things. But a Christian author blatantly broke Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and said, I'm going to judge this person's salvation based on their earthly works, that they have earned their way into a heaven that he didn't even believe in. Now, I'm not Gandhi's judge, And I don't know where he is in eternity. I'm I'm thankful that that's not my position, that I have to make that choice. But I know that the only way to get to Jesus' heaven is through Jesus. And what we've done is we look around at other people and we're just like, they're a really good person. There's no way. Well, when we judge people based on our standard, that is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness cannot get us into heaven. It is only God's standard of righteousness. And the only way to reach God's standard of righteousness is to have Jesus Christ in our heart. And so we have gone down a slippery slope as Christians looking at people and saying, well, they've been benevolent. They've been a humanitarian. They've been all these things by my standards are pretty good. God, I'm I'm not trying to be rude, guys. Our standard is not the standard that gets us into heaven. It is not my choice. It is his standard. And what Jesus calls us to do is Jesus says, reject your abilities, reject your adequacy, reject your standard of righteousness, reject your work and exchange it for my work. There is freedom in that, guys, that we understand that no matter what I do, I can never do enough, but I don't have to. I just have to trust that his work that is already completed and done on the cross, that that is enough. And so my salvation is not by my works, it's by my faith, by his grace. And once I've received salvation through grace, through faith, then I get to work then I start doing good things and not for my benefit. This is what the Bible says. So people will see my good works and give my father honor in heaven. So he receives glory by the good things we do. That's why I can put it on Facebook and tell you how great I am, but so God can receive glory. So more people can exchange their abilities and their works for his. So how in the heck do we do that, right? Here's where you guys are gonna be so not blown away. It's so simple. How do we exchange our adequacies for his? How do we exchange our work for his? How do we do that? Listen, this is going to be very unpopular, and you guys are going to get mad at this, but we need to accept that none of us are good enough to go to heaven. Corey, how can you say such a thing? Because the Bible says every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have earned it. And there's no matter how good any of us can be, we cannot earn salvation. So we need to give up. What I mean by that is we need, to, we need to stop trying to earn our way, trying to buy something that's freely given. We need to stop. And we need to accept the fact that there is nothing good in us apart from God. Just dig down deep, guys. There's good in there. There is not good in there. David said it in the Psalms, and Paul said it in the New Testament. The only good that's in us is because God has placed it there. It is all because of him. So when we say dig down deep, there's good. If you dig down deep, you're going to be disappointed in you. The only good in us is God. So we need to relent. The second thing is this. Since our righteousness can get us into heaven, our self-righteousness cannot get us to heaven, what do we do? We fill ourselves up with the only one who does have the righteousness to get us into heaven. We fill ourselves up with the Holy Spirit. We fill us up with a relationship with Jesus. We pray, we read, we attend, and we serve. Guys, it is that Simple and straightforward. If anyone comes to me and says, my life is falling apart, what is the first step I do? I just tell them, be here every week. If you will commit to just being here every week, you will see such a dramatic shift in your life. If you will hear the word of God, and then if you start picking up your Bible on your own time, and if you start praying on your own time, and if you start serving, God will do huge transformative things in your life by simply doing those four things. So how do we exchange our works for his? We lean on him. We lean on him. We build a relationship with him. We also ask for forgiveness. And here's the big one. We accept that forgiveness. I love what Peter said. Peter came up to Jesus one time. (laughs) I identify with Peter a lot. You know, I was thinking the other day, you know that story when Peter cuts off the soldier's ear? You know, he wasn't aiming for the ear, right? (laughs) He was aiming for that dude's neck. And luckily, that guy zigged or zagged or something, and he only got an ear. But that guy, Peter was trying to kill that dude. And so we identify with him. Peter walked up to Jesus one time, and he said, Jesus, how many times do we have to forgive these people, right? Seven times a day if they do the same thing. Seven times do I have to forgive them? And Jesus said, hmm, let me think about that. How about seven times 70, Peter? So if they do the same thing to you 490 times on the 491st, you cannot forgive them. That's what Jesus said to Peter. And so for us, guys, listen, every time we genuinely ask God to forgive us, he does. And we need to accept that grace and we need to accept that forgiveness. And then like he said to the man that he healed last week, stop that, stop that sin. Take steps to change what you're doing. We rely on his grace. We rely on his work to save us. So how do we exchange our works for his? This is where I told you you're not gonna be impressed. The most fundamental thing, if, I, if I've never met you and you walk up and say, Corey, you can tell me one sentence, I would look at you and say, Jesus loves you. If I could say one thing to you, it's that God loves you. Listen, let me tell you the depths of God's love. I have two girls, two beautiful girls. I wouldn't sacrifice one of my girls for any of you or all of you. Wouldn't do it. If someone came up and said, either all of your congregation of thousands live or your child lives, I'd say, my girl, that's my girl. I love Aya, I love Vi, those are my kids. Here's what Jesus did, or here's what God did. God had one son, and for an earth that it says, while they were still sinners, rebellious and hateful and racist and ugly and drowning in sin, even when we were in that state, God gave his only son that we should not die but have eternal life. That's how much he loves us. Those of you who are parents in here, think about not only giving up your child for people, but giving up your child for people that may not care. That's how much God loves us. For those of you who have committed atrocious sins, those of you who have lived in rebellion, those of you who have done just the same sin over and over and over again, even the Pharisees that hated Jesus and had him crucified, Jesus said, I'm going through all this trouble for you guys too. I want you to be saved. Even as the Roman centurions were nailing him to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And one of those Roman centurions got saved. If you go back and read the gospel, it says that when the earthquake, the run of the Romans fell down on his knees and said, surely this was the son of God. One of the same Romans that was nailing a stake into his feet or hands gave up and said, surely that that was the son of God. And God touched his heart. Told the story a million times. Ted Bundy who murdered and raped 60 women. Awful stuff. The last thing he did before the day he died is he sat in front of James Dobson and he told the story about how Jesus intervened in his life and saved him. Corey, that's crazy grace. Heck yes. That a murderer, a serial killer, he willingly went to his death. He knew he deserved it. Life had, God had saved him and changed him moments before. That's how gracious God is. That's how loving God is. And so if you are in this room and you are struggling with self-worth, I know it's cliche and I know we've made it into bumper stickers and silly t-shirts, but Jesus Christ, who it says all, may, all things were made through and for, which means that Jesus is the same God in Genesis chapter one and two that spoke everything into existence and formed man out of dust and formed woman out of man and built a relationship with them. We are the only things that look like God. We are the only things that God has ever created that he breathed his life into, he breathed his spirit into, so we are eternal beings. The same Jesus that did all of that is the same Jesus that just loves you ridiculously regardless of what you've done. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, some of you guys need to quit trying so hard. Let me clarify that. You need to quit trying to do things based simply on your abilities. You need to quit comparing yourselves to other people. You need to quit kicking yourself You need to quit doubting. You need to stop being afraid. You need to stop those things. What you need to do is you need to lean on Christ. He's already done the work that saves us. He's already performed the actions that can make us righteous and make us holy in front of God. He's already done that. All we have to do is accept it. All we have to do is build a relationship with him. He will change our lives now and forever So here's what we're going to do is your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. There will be people on my left, your right. My left, your right. If you are in here and you are specifically, you can come up there for any reason, but I want to speak to this this crowd in particular. If you struggle with depression or anxiety or self-worth, if you've ever hurt yourself or you've ever thought about hurting yourself, I would like for you to come up and take a leap of faith and let some men and women lay hands on you and pray for you. As Galatians 6.1 says, let others help you bear that burden that fulfills the law of Jesus Christ. Let them pray for you. Don't be embarrassed, don't be afraid. If you're in here and you're not a believer, and maybe you're struggling, maybe you come from a broken family or maybe you've made a bunch of mistakes and you somehow ended up in this building today, I wanna tell you, if I could tell you one thing I want to just tell you that there is a God in heaven that loves you. Not just loves you, he knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts and your actions. And his will is that you do not perish. His will is that you do not go to hell, that you go to heaven and be with him. That's his will. For those of you in here who are believers and maybe you've stumbled, maybe you've slid away from God, maybe you've been rebellious, maybe you've kind of taken your own turn. Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, Today is a great opportunity to repent, to just say, God, I am sorry. Even if you've done that mistake a million times, say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I wanna change, I don't wanna keep doing this. And God is quick to forgive, guys. It says in the Bible that when we ask for forgiveness, our sins are in the depths of the sea. It says that they're as far as the east is from the west. They're covered, they're gone, they're distant, they're forgiven. And if you've asked God to forgive you, there's communion all the way around you where you can take the bread and the juice, and that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God that was given to us to pay for our sin, to pay for our guilt and our shame, to pay for our rebellion, and that we can remember that, and we can take that, and that we can be filled up by the Spirit of God, that we can be given a new sense of worth and value and hope and restoration So please, if you need prayer, get prayer. If you need to pray with someone around you, my God, pray with them. Pray with them, even if you don't know them. Reach over and put a hand on someone if you need to, if God tells you to. Take communion and remember how big of a deal that is, that we get to commune and have a relationship with God. And ask for forgiveness if there's any sin in your heart. Lord Jesus, God, I love you. Lord, for anyone in this room who's not a believer, Lord, I pray that something today, just sparked something inside of them, that they'll ask questions or that they'll come back next week or that maybe they'll go to the connection desk and ask or or something, Lord. If there's anyone in this room, God, who's struggling with depression, anxiety, fear, worthlessness, self-harm or suicidal thoughts, God, Lord, let them get hands laid on them so they can be prayed for. Now, we can help carry that burden. God, if there's anyone in this room who is a Christian, but maybe they've slipped into some bad habits, Lord, if they ask for forgiveness, forgive them, Lord, and let them accept your grace and your mercy. Lord, let them take communion with a clean conscience, Lord, so they can feel your your, your presence and your spirit and be filled up by you again. God, thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you for your love. We've never earned it, God, but you so freely give it. We pray all this in your name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. I appreciate you all.